women have been leading differently their whole lives in the past many decades. And in success, they show us what phenomenal leaders of this next generation should look like. They're not all white men, and they're leading in ways that I hope everyone will lead, leading with empathy and vulnerability and these characteristics that for many years have been seen as flaws, but I have seen in my reporting that can actually be leadership superpowers. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. It's Mo Shwanunu. We have a special edition for you today. I'm really excited about today's interview. It's a conversation with Julia Borston. She's the author of a new book that breaks down why companies need more female leaders. In fact, she breaks down the data and shows that a company is more likely to succeed and have a better bottom line if it has a female CEO. You might already be familiar with Julia Borston. She's the lead media and tech reporter over at CNBC, where she has spent more than 16 years interviewing every major CEO from Silicon Valley, from Hollywood. She really does an incredible job breaking news every day uh, for the business channel on all things happening at all the companies that uh, really manage our lives these days, Amazon, Netflix, Google, uh, and all the major studios in Hollywood. So in addition to all her day-to-day duties at CNBC, uh, managing the coverage there of all things tech and media, she somehow found the time to write a new book, a really incredible book, called When Women Lead, where she interviewed more than 100 women leaders, breaking down the unique characteristics women bring to the C-suite. Julia also went through hundreds of studies, and what I love about this book is it really goes into the data. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview and learn a lot. I certainly did. As Julia explains in our conversation, she is not making the ethical case for more women leaders, though that would certainly be nice. What she's arguing is that it's actually better for the bottom line and has the data to back it up. In the conversation, Julia talks about three of the key characteristics women bring to business, empathy, gratitude, and vulnerability, and why those specific characteristics matter, especially in times of crisis. We taped this conversation the weekend after Elon Musk took over Twitter officially. Julia had just spent the previous day, I think about 16 hours covering it. So that is where we started the interview before we got into the book. A reminder before we get started here to follow this show so you don't miss a single episode and also leave us a review if you can. It helps us continue to grow the show uh, and expand our reach and make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast, both the daily edition and the interviews we're doing here on the Mo News Podcast. With that, let's get to the interview. Julia Borston, lead reporter on tech and media at CNBC and the author of the new book, When Women Lead. It is so great to see you. Thank you so much for having me on. How are you doing? I know yesterday was, we as we tape this, you're coming off of a uh, marathon day of covering Elon taking over Twitter. Yeah, that's right. Elon Musk is officially the owner of Twitter. I cannot wait to see what happen ne- happens next. I feel like every time I open Twitter, I refresh it, just like waiting to see if something weird is going to pop up. You've covered him for a while. No, like starting with covering Elon. I mean, he's the CEO of Tesla. He's the CEO of SpaceX. He's now taken on a third company. How does Elon typically approach these things? What are you looking for? Well, what's interesting is I feel like he has a radical approach that he ends up mostly accomplishing. It just takes longer than he thinks. So I think back to when I interviewed him, I believe it was in 2016 for CNBC's Disruptor 50 list. The Disruptor 50 is my my baby. It's my my passion project. I've been doing it for 10 years. And he um, we named SpaceX to number one on the list. And we had him on to join, join me from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange from CNBC's set there to talk about SpaceX, innovation, et cetera. And we were talking about all these different things. He looks me straight in the eye on live television. It's 2016. He says, we will be on Mars by 2020. We will be there. And I questioned him and kind of nudged him, like, it seems pretty soon. And he couldn't, he, he didn't even engage in the idea that it might not happen that quickly. And, and then he went on this rant about um, AI taking over the world and robots and killer robots and yada, yada. So, and to me, I was trying to figure out, I was like, this is a live interview. I was like, is this like, is he messing with me? Is this real? Like what's actually happening here? And that you don't typically have a, a, a internal monologue of like, is this guy messing with me when you're doing a live interview with the CEO? So that is incredibly unusual. But to me, what's so interesting, if you look at the Tesla example, is he laid out this bold vision for EVs and he accomplished it. And now EVs are going to be the future. If you look at like what GM is doing, Mary Barra, she has this, this date by which all of their vehicles will be electric vehicles. So he, he's been able to accomplish things that people thought were 
impossible or improbable or unlikely. They just didn't happen quite as quickly as he had said they would happen. So will we get to Mars? Probably. It certainly didn't happen in 2020. Will it happen by 2030? Maybe. But I think there's something that our culture loves about this kind of visionary genius and this this shoot for the stars mentality. It doesn't always translate um, to effective day-to-day management, which is why I'm very curious to see if he brings in new CEOs, leadership, CFOs, et cetera, to, to Twitter. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of hope that he can he can really innovate this platform. And as of Friday, when he announced that he was going to have this content moderation panel, I think there's an acknowledgement that he can't just have a free speech free-for-all um, because he's relying on advertising. So it'll be interesting to see how practical he becomes now that he's actually in charge of this, this machine. Yeah, I find it notable, the, the message he put out to advertisers on Thursday where he said... Don't worry, it's not going to be some hellscape, even though he does have these very high-minded ideas about freedom of speech. If somebody told me, you know, listen, liberals are more worried than they need to be. Conservatives are not going to end up being as happy as they are today, that somehow he will have to find some sort of middle ground. He'll find some middle ground and no one will be, no one will be happy. But if, but if that's what happens, then maybe he's doing his job. I just think fundamentally, he says he's a free speech absolutist. But there, you have to be really careful with hate speech, as we've seen recently. Mm-hmm. And if he has hate speech on the platform, advertisers will not want to be there, period. We've already seen some advertisers say they are pausing their investments in Twitter until they have more reassurance about what direction things are going in. And I think that matters. I mean, yes, Elon Musk wants to build a subscription service. Yes, he has this, this vision for a super app with lots of different things happening on this X app, inclusive of Twitter. Um, but he's not going to be able to get there and certainly not going to be, cre- be able to create enough alternative revenue streams for him to back away from advertising in any meaningful way. So I think that brand safety, which is the, you know, the industry jargon for making sure there's no offensive content on there, brand safety really matters. And I just feel like as consumers, I was reading a couple of pieces about this and well, I've, 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 there's two interesting storylines. One, just the plateauing of Twitter for so many years, right? Like as all these other platforms have grown, just looking at the active user data, like for a Facebook and a TikTok and an Instagram, and then Twitter's down there in the couple hundred million range. And these guys are all, they've all surpassed a billion. And then separately, the fact that so many people want to have a happy place on social media, right? Like they want to escape the negativity of our reality and so you you go to a place, I mean, for example, they're all following the lead of TikTok, right? Like TikTok delights. They love the word delight, right? It de- I've heard Adam Masseri on Instagram say it this It addicts and it delights. Addicts. But like, I mean, yeah. I could watch cat video, funny cat videos till the cows come home. But I do think it has a very different functionality than Twitter, right? Twitter is about yeah. news, headlines, conversations, debates, sometimes very angry debates. Mm-hmm. TikTok is about passing the time and having like an hour sucked up by scrolling through funny cat videos. I don't know what TikTok feeds you, but that's what both Instagram Reels and TikTok think that I want to see, which is silly cat videos. Right. So, um, or at least maybe that's what my kids want to see. But to me, they're very different use cases. I can't help but mention Pinterest. Pinterest had a killer quarter. Pinterest mm-hmm. rose in the early days of the pandemic because people were pinning their sourdough recipes and pinning the items they wanted to redecorate their home offices. Then it plummeted because people were going out in the world again and not spending time on Twi- tick, uh, on Pinterest. The users declined fairly meaningfully. And then now they're on the rise again. And you know why? Because it's all about shopping. Talk about a safe, happy, happy place. Pin the products you want to buy. We're going to help you buy them. Closing the loop, helping advertisers, helping consumers who'd rather browse pictures and, and shop shop rather than see angry tweets on Twitter. But they're just, to me, incredibly different use cases. Twitter, yeah. TikTok, Pinterest, they're all for people in different states of mind who want different things. And I think that Pinterest has this big advantage right now because they're all about shopping and no one else is really doing that. In fact, even Meta is backing off from shopping right now and investing less in that. Um, but twi- you know, Twitter has to figure out what it wants to be and what it wants to do. Elon Musk has this bold vision of by 2028 having nearly a billion users. I think they have 217 million now. So he's very, very ambitious. Will he get there? Maybe it'll take longer than 2028 based on, um, you know, how his timelines tend to be uh, longer than he anticipates. I'll have much more from my interview with Julia after a break. All right. As we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep 
is by checking out Bull and Branch Betting and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. So, Julie, you've been a reporter now at CNBC for 16 years, and you've uh, you know covered all things uh, tech, media, Hollywood. You've watched this evolution. I mean, when you started at CNBC, what what was the state of tech uh, reporting? Just g- give me the state of, uh, you know, where things were when you got there and sort of uh, give folks a, a sense of what you've covered over these past, how things have changed these the, past The transformation. Years. So I started at CNBC in 2006 and media and tech were two very different things. They were different industries with different products, different consumers. It was just a very different business. At the time, we were starting to see some innovation in media with Netflix. That was the innovative company. And we saw the first inklings of media tech intersection when Google bought YouTube, which I think was 2006 or 2005, 2006. And we just started to see that innovation there. And we started to see the innovation of social media, which was an ad-supported platform on tech. So that was the first real crossover. And increasingly, what's been amazing over the past 16 years is the media and tech industries are one. They've converged. They've entirely come together. I have this whole thesis that every company is a tech company, but I think it's been fascinating to see how these two businesses have are, are entirely intertwined and there's no separating them. When I started at CNBC, I was always really fascinated by entrepreneurs. At Fortune Magazine, we cover Fortune 500 companies. At CNBC, we cover public companies. But I was noticing as a young reporter at CNBC, the rise of a little tiny startup called Facebook, which I had actually learned about because my brother was in college and he was telling me about it. He was one of the earlier Facebook users. And so I thought, we got to write about this company. We got to do something on TV about this company. And we started. Um, I started covering Facebook and this entrepreneur, Mark Zuckerberg, more as a side project. And as Facebook got bigger and bigger, and as I covered its IPO, which was a fascinating experience for many reasons... I thought we need to create a structure to educate our viewers, CNBC's viewers, about these small companies long before they go public. We got to tell them about the Facebooks five years before the IPO, A, because Facebooks and it's that type of disruptor are challenging the public giants and forcing them to change, and B, they're going to be the giants of tomorrow. So I created the Disruptor 50 list to create that structure around talking about private startups. So that was my, that I started off as a media reporter. Disruptor 50 was my real entree into tech reporting. And I started with the startups that are now the giants. So, And then separately, as I started covering more Google, which is, of course, an ad-supported business, um, uh, Amazon with their big investments in media and, and advertising. Amazon really is the third biggest ad, media, you know, ad giant in the digital media space. Um, it was clear that these two things are intertwined. And you can't talk about media without talking about tech and vice versa. So I went from media... To media and tech, and it was a natural segue because these things are. It's, it's amazing how much companies like Netflix have transformed the media industry, and companies like Apple are now media companies, and it's all one and the same. And it makes it really fun as a journalist. As you've been covering these companies, taking on the lens now of your book, When Women Lead, um, take me through boardrooms, the C-suite um, over the course of these past decade and a half. I was actually surprised by the number, how low uh, the number is still for the number of uh, female-led VCs being invested in, the number of women in the C-suite. Where were we in 06? Where are we today? And where do we need to go? 
The numbers are very low. Back in 2006, when I started, very few companies that I intersected with were run by women. And you maybe would see women in the C-suite and CFO or COO roles, but many fewer as CEOs. Right now, as of May, when the last Fortune 500 list came out, 8.5% of Fortune 500 companies had female CEOs. That is an all-time high, an all-time high. And if you look at the C-suite of, I think it was the, the Russell 2000, I'll have to check which of the uh, biggest companies are. I think it's in the in the mid-20s. So 20, 23, 24% of those C-suite executives are women. But the problem is if you get higher in the funnel, the fewer women there are, the fewer women of color. There was actually a great McKinsey lean-in study that came out this week that had a graphic that showed the decline of women and women of color the more senior you get in an organization and specifically shows that at each promotion – the number of women drop off, the number of white women, white men who are getting promoted increases. So this is a, a systemic issue. It's not like tons of women are making it to the C-suite. They just don't get to be CEO. Is that women often never make it anywhere close because they're falling behind in those first two promotions. So um, the numbers are crazy. And then if you look at the VC space, last year, female founders got 2% of all venture capital funding. 2%. 2021, 2%. Co-ed uh, founding teams got about 15.5%. Male-only founding teams drew 82% of all VC dollars in 2021. The percent going to female-only teams actually declined from an average of 3% over the prior decade to 2% last year. It went down. It went down. It went down during the pandemic. We can dig into the reasons for that and the sort of reversion towards what feels safe for investors but to me, I was really struck by these, these numbers, the fact that they had not changed, the fact that there was such a massive gender gap. And to me, I thought, you know, we're in a culture that celebrates outliers. We're fascinated by what has enabled the success of outliers back to people like Elon Musk. But the reality is, is the people who may have faced the highest hurdles and the, the most obstacles against them are probably women in that tech space. And I had been interviewing these women through the Disruptor 50 list. They were remarkable. And not only were they in the tiny minority, but I was so inspired by them and found them leading and doing things in slightly different ways. They did feel different the way they were talking about their strategies and their companies than their male counterparts. So I thought, if I'm inspired by these women. I want to tell their stories. And I want to help change the archetypes of what's out there of what a successful leader looks like. We see it on CNBC all the time. We see it on the cover of the Fortune 500. The dominant e image of what a leader looks like are men on, in suits from New York City or guys in hoodies from Silicon Valley. And that defines the image of leadership in our society. But I was seeing in my experience that that's not at all what successful leaders look like, particularly those leaders who defied the highest odds. So I use this lens of the, the, high, the highest odds against them of women who had managed to succeed in the tech in the tech landscape backed by VC. And I dug into this the, these stories, interviewed about 120 people, and from there found these commonalities. And then I started to dig into the research. And I went, read probably 300 academic studies. I include bits of about dozens of the studies in the book. But the studies reveal that these traits that these women are, are leading with and the, the strategies that they're deploying are actually things that, yes, women are more likely to do, but are in fact incredibly valuable for everyone, male and female. And that was my big takeaway. Women have been leading differently their whole lives in the past many decades. Um, and, and, and in success, they show us what phenomenal leaders of this next generation should look like. They're not all white men, and they're leading in ways that I hope everyone will lead, leading with empathy and vulnerability and these characteristics that for many years have been seen as flaws, but I have seen in my reporting that can actually be leadership superpowers. Yeah, I, I want to get into those characteristics in, in a second, but I'm curious as to, we were just talking about the numbers of, of CEOs, right, the percentage. And it's interesting because at the same time, if you look at the numbers of college grads in this country, women are the majority. Mm -hmm. um, starting grad, out, by the way, every type of grad school, with the exception of business school, and business school is coming near, closer to parity these days. Right. There's some universities that are actually concerned by the like low percentage of males that are Correct. actually getting in, and like it's it's completely reversed. So the majority of grads outside of business school are women. They're all starting out at these companies. What is happening along the way? What is what is the issue? What is how are they not getting to the top of the ladder? Why is that? Well, it's a complex. You know, it's a complex question with a complex answer. 
again, back to another McKinsey-Lenin study, they found something called the broken rung. This idea that if you miss a promotion halfway through your career, you know, a couple decades into your career, you're never going to make it to the top. The women hit this broken rung in the ladder, maybe because they have kids, maybe because they take time off work, maybe because they're in a less intense work mindset because they're managing kids at home. And so women may not take them outside, take themselves outside the workforce, but if they just miss a little bit of that sort of acceleration that happens mid-career, then they never get a chance to make it to the top. There, there's this another piece of the study that came out this week from McKinsey that found that senior women are quitting in record numbers. They are leaving in record right. numbers. And that is because of their personal frustration with the lack of recognition they get, the fact that other people are taking credit for their work, and because they have younger people questioning them or undermining them or younger men sort of basically not respecting their authority. So there are sort of practical reasons of women saying, forget this, I've had enough, I'm going to I'm gonna quit and maybe start my own company or maybe do my own thing. Um, and by the way, if you lose those senior women, it's really da- damaging to think about the mentorship and the role models that are lost. But then these sort of structural challenges of the the broken rung and and the lack of promotion every step of the way. I did a story for CNBC for Closing the Gap, looking at some companies that had really invested in closing their pay gaps. There is still a persistent pay gap, a pay gap about, I think white women have about 86 cents on the dollar for white men. Black women, it's much less than that. Massive pay gaps exacerbated for for women of color. So basically for the same job, Women, um, white women are making 86 cents for every dollar that a man makes. And then uh, women of color are making much less than that. Yes, correct. And I have the numbers right here. Um, yeah. So what um, women on average earn 82 cents for every dollar men earn. Black women earn 63 cents for every dollar white men earn. You can find this all in my handy book here. Yeah. So the pay gap is massive, but I wanted to see how companies were closing it. It is not impossible to close a pay gap. You just have to commit to doing it. But what was most interesting, and this is, ties into your question, Salesforce dug into their pay gap. They found they actually did not technically have a pay gap because men and women at the same level were getting paid the same amount. What they realized in doing the research, though, is that men were getting promoted so much faster than they ended up getting paid more. So women were staying in the same position for longer and getting paid reasonable for that position, But men's promotion rate was so far accelerated that they ended up making far more money over their careers and getting to the higher levels. They realized that was in part because men were asking for promotions faster. And the bosses, the managers, were promoting men faster. Even the female managers were more likely to promote men faster. So they used the data to break out that bias and move away from it. PayPal had a similar situation where they created a very complex system of measuring performance to make sure that managers were were, were rewarding people, not on whether they liked someone or someone reminded them of themselves when they were younger, but actually based on tangible performance metrics. And with that, they were able to weed out not only pay, pay bias, but also promotion bias. So this is possible to do. Um, It just takes an investment. And ultimately, what both PayPal and Salesforce have found is that investing to close pay gaps and promotion gaps is not just the right thing to do, but it actually really helps for retention of employees at a time when obviously that's very important. So what you just brought up there gets to the idea of characteristics, uh, the, the qualities of men and women in leadership, men and women at work, the types of things they ask for, the way they act. Just to level set here. Um, if you went through, take me through the kind of traditional characteristics that you ascribe to both men and women uh, in the workplace. So I did, I'm not a student of, of male uh, of male leaders. I, I mean, I mean, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of them, but the yeah. the traditional characteristics. I'm going to couch this in traditional um, because I do see men starting to lead in more traditionally female ways. The traditional is men leaders are more agentic. They're oriented towards action. Agentic is a is an academic word. I apologize for that. But they're oriented towards action rather than taking a moment to consider, op, you know, consider options or consider data. So they're oriented towards action, and they're more likely to lead in a top down way rather than in a communal way. So I, in these 120 interviews and hundreds of academic research reports, what I found is that female leaders are more likely to be empathetic. Women in general are more likely to be empathetic. But that is a trait that really helps leaders, and particularly we've seen female leaders used to their advantage. Obviously, empathy is valuable as a skill for connecting with employees, 
connecting with customers, relating to investors or partners, et cetera. Women are more likely to lead with vulnerability. Um, vulnerability traditionally is seen as a weakness, but no, admitting what you're not good at, what you need help with is really valuable to invite collaboration. Um, and I've found in, in a number of examples has helped women hire very senior executives away from other companies because the women said, this is not my thing. You're going to get to take the lead in this. And that mm. uh, really invites other people to step up. Um, women are more likely to lead in a communal way. So the opposite of that top-down approach, um, pulling in, pulling from perspectives from across their organization. And while male leaders are more likely to have convergent thinking, like we got to solve a problem, let's just focus on getting this problem solved right now, women are more likely to have divergent thinking. So that means pulling on related tangents, talking about the situation around a problem, more sort of looking at the forest in order to understand the tree better rather than just rushing to help fix the tree right now. So it seems, and women also have, have been found to have a higher, what they call adaptability quotient. And I actually think the convergent thinking helps with that because if you've already explored the situation around a problem, when the situation changes, you already sort of have a better sense of the context. So you may be better equipped to look at the new, the new challenge. And I, one other trait that you bring up in the book is gratitude. Yes, this is the surprise one to me. I had no idea that gratitude had anything to do with business. I think of gratitude as like a personal characteristic, a familial trait. So what I found um, is that female leader, fe women feel more comfortable practicing gratitude. There are various studies showing that women love the feeling of gratitude. It makes them feel great. Men oftentimes feel uncomfortable with gratitude. Does this mean that I owe someone something? Does this mean that I have to do something for someone else because I'm grateful for them? And so men are less likely to practice gratitude. But they should practice more gratitude because gratitude is found to correlate with long-term planning. There's a study I cite in the book that I think is so interesting. They get they ask people to to either do nothing or to write about something that makes them happy. So to like have a happiness exercise. And then they offer them whether they want $50 now or $86 in the future, like a month in the future. And they're going to hand them the cash now or they're going to mail them a check to show up in a couple of weeks. People who practice happiness or nothing, they always opt for the money up front. They'd rather get the quick payout. They have a different group of people come in and they say, write about something that you feel grateful for. Do a gra gratitude practice. The people who did the gratitude practice, they pick the long-term payout. Hmm. They're more likely to go say, I, I'm fine right now. I feel grateful. I feel good. I'm not going to go for the near-term fix. I'm going to go for the long-term, getting paid far more in the future. So I've seen this time after time after time with the women I've interviewed, the CEOs who say, it's okay that I'm not going to hit this, these quarterly numbers because it's much more important that I have the big payout down the line. I'm so grateful I get to solve this problem. I can handle a little bit more pain now because I know that long-term, the the upshot is going to be so much bigger. So it's I've seen it in action and it came up in so many interviews. And when I went through the transcripts, it was amazing how much the words gratitude, blessed, you know, lucky came up time after time again. Women who practice gratitude prayers every morning before they go out and try to have a company that also addresses global warming. So they're not they're not solving for a near term problem. They're trying to return revenue, you know, their investment to to their backers, but they're also solving for something massive like like global warming. So I this idea that gratitude correlates not just with longer term thinking but bigger picture problem solving means we should all be practicing gratitude every day. So. When you're talking about these businesses, you know, we're talking about individual leaders, but ultimately most businesses are a team sport. You have, uh, you know, multiple leaders running various divisions, et cetera. And ideally, uh, in this day and age, you have a, a mix of men and women. How do those various characteristics, how, how does it play amongst leaders kind of at, at equal, at an equal level? How, like, are there any interesting examples or in the interviews that you've done of of the team approach and how they're incorporating um, some of the traditional attributes that women bring into uh, larger leadership teams. So um, I have a whole chapter in the book about management and the idea of bringing the most out of diverse teams. And the idea that having diverse teams is not about the, some, some kumbaya, everyone's ideas are welcome, but bringing together perspectives to clash and people to disagree and get the best out of that. So, um, And so you have to read this chapter if you haven't gotten there already, because there's some fabulous stories in there, but female leaders are more likely to have diverse teams that report to them. So female leaders are more likely to have gender and racial diversity in their employee base. 
um, which is obviously incredibly important for financial outcomes. Um, They're also more likely to invest in mentorship. But my interest in having diversity in teams is that female leaders are actually more likely to have women in in groups are more likely to do conversational turn-taking, which means if you get a group of people together, women will make sure everyone gets a chance to speak when they go around the room. Whereas if you have a male-dominated environment, it's not unusual to have one man or two men just sort of steamroll the conversation. Everyone else sits there silently. That's not productive. There's some really interesting data and some examples in the book about having how having diversity in problem solving not only brings in the outside perspectives, that seems obvious, but having diversity actually makes everyone in the group raise their game, sort of level up the way they're reconsidering their assumptions. Why are they making the decisions they are? If someone else is here who might be challenging them, they better be really sure about what they're about to say. So this idea that diversity has this additional benefit in addition to the outside perspectives of raising the level of the whole group. Um, but I think about someone like Jen Tejada. Jennifer Tejada is the CEO of PagerDuty, which is uh, an enterprise software company. And she decided to break down the silo between the salespeople who are selling her technology and the engineers who are creating it. And, and everyone was like, why, would you, why do these people need to talk to each other? And she's like, they need to understand the challenges and the realities, and they each need to make the other group better. And it totally worked. By the way, she also, in her tenure, dramatically increased the gender and racial diversity of the people who work there. And um, that was something that was important to her personally. Um, but seeing how that correlated with the stock's rise is pretty is pretty notable. Um, so she broke down silos. There's another woman, Deidre Packnad, who has a company called Workboard. And what they do is they enable teams to like set their set their objectives and key results, the OKRs that we talk about in business, but then also to let people talk about the hard stuff first, sort of destigmatizing discomfort about talking about failure, with the understanding that if everyone can come together, share their perspective, give advice, give their thoughts on other people's failures, then everyone's going to get better. But a lot of this comes down to the idea that people need to get used to having tough conversations at work and also get over their own discomfort with what might be a a failure here and there and understand that each one of those failures is an opportunity to improve. I'm very interested in the the group dynamic. You have an example, a study from Northwestern that involves fraternities and sororities in the book. Uh, Tell me about that and and the lessons from that study. That's a great study. This study is so interesting. So these, and this ties into what I was just saying about having an outsider levels up the whole group. Professors gathered sorority sisters and fraternity brothers from a bunch of different sororities at North and fraternities at Northwestern, and they grouped people together with other people from their Greek house with the understanding that they may not be friends, they may not even really know each other, but they have a shared culture and code within their Greek house. They asked these little groups from the same Greek house to solve a fictional murder mystery. And, um, and then about five minutes into this exercise they introduced an outsider into the group, someone from a different Greek house. So the people who were already evaluating the murder mystery had this outsider join, and those with an outsider uh, uh, figured out the murder mystery far more successfully. So they were far more likely to get the right answer. Hmm. Now, you might think that's because the outsider knew the answer. The outsider brought the answer into the, the original group, but that's not it at all. Having someone from another fraternity or sorority there meant that everyone in the original group was like, wait a second, they may not be thinking about this the same way I am. What if they question my approach? I better reconsider my own assumptions before I talk here. So I think there's this whole idea that having an outsider makes everyone raise their game. And there's something so interesting about thinking about a fraternity or sorority sharing a code um, and how you just, the whole group gets smarter. Even the groups that had no idea what the answer was before the outsider came, there the, the whole problem-solving process is improved when everyone is a little bit more conscious of their own assumptions, their own biases. And instead of saying, yeah, 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 I'm sure we all think about this the same way, they're saying, wait a second, we have this new guy here. Why am I making this assumption? It speaks to the effectiveness of, of diversity. You know, I, I, I heard you speaking about the book and you were saying that the case you're making is not just an ethical case for more women in leadership. It's a business case. You cover businesses. They're worried about the bottom line. They're worried about profits and revenues and shareholders, et cetera. Um, lay, lay out, as you went through the numbers, the impact of diversity on the actual bottom line here, why it makes sense 
financially for these companies. Uh, yeah, I'm not making an ethical case for diversity. That's not actually part of what I'm talking about at all. Yeah. What I'm talking about is the fact that I lay out these numbers, and study after study, whether you're looking at diversity in boardrooms, diversity among CEOs, diversity in the C-suite, inclusive of other CFO, COO roles, et cetera. Diversity among investors at VC funds. If you add more diversity, the firms perform better. Diversity at startups, the founders that have female founders perform better. So each one of these studies showed that having more diversity leads to better financial outcomes. Take a board. The boards with more diversity, they're less likely to take unnecessary risks. They perform better. I love this study um, of uh, regional banks during the financial crisis because it's actually pretty easy to compare regional banks. And obviously, the financial crisis was a huge disaster for many of them. The regional banks that were led by women outperformed. They were more likely to survive and to do far better during the financial crisis. So these researchers went back and back in and said, why? Was it something these women did once the financial crisis hit? And mm -hmm. they said, no, it turns out that those female CEOs were less likely to take on risk in any case. They didn't take on as much risk in that lead up to the financial crisis. And then if you look at startups, the numbers are so dramatic. It's shocking to me that female founders get so little access to capital. Um, There's a study um, out of Boston, and they looked at 350 startups, and they compared the male and female-led startups. The female-led startups raised half as much money as the male-led startups, and then they yielded about twice as high the return on investment a, a number of years later. So half as much upfront, twice the ROI. It just doesn't make sense that women are getting such little access to capital. But I do start to see examples of male-led companies that are understanding the financial opportunity in diversity. And that is a reason for me to be optimistic. But I look at like first round capital, Philly-based VC fund run by a man, Josh Kopelman, 10 years into his, his firm's operations, you know, they invest in the early stage. They invest largely based on their instinct about entrepreneurs and their ideas. 10 years in, he said, let's review our, our track record. And they found that the female-led companies were 63% more profitable. That is not a statistical error. That is really notable. Significant. And yeah. very significant. And so he, they really changed their whole investment strategy as a result of that. I mean, it's been a slow evolution, but much more cognizant of the value of diversity. It's interesting because there's some parallels here. I spoke to your colleague, NBC colleague, Ali Vitali, recently. I had her on the podcast talking about her uh, new book, Electable, about why we haven't had a woman president yet and the challenges female politicians face. Um, and we talked a bit about, especially watching kind of the Hillary Clinton evolution, there was a time period when uh, female politicians felt like they had to fit into male stereotypes, um, even dress-wise. And only recently, they've been able to kind of embrace female characteristics um, to a certain extent. And wondering how you're seeing that play out in the, in the business world. Very similar thing. It's a double bind. Women are expected to be warm and nurturing. That is the baseline, assum baseline assumption that women are going to be warm and nurturing. But there's also this expectation that you have to be serious and aggressive to compete in a male-driven world. But in a chapter um, in my book, I lay out all the different ways women face double standards. And it's mind-boggling. Women are, are judged more harshly if they succeed in a male-dominated environment. Women are judged more harshly if they, um, if they fail in a female-dominated world. <laughs> They're judged more harshly if they don't demonstrate warmth, if they demonstrate too much warmth. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous laundry list of things that you can't possibly meet all these expectations at the yeah, same time. Yeah, uh, th that's your chapter on gender incongruity. And yeah. you're talking about also that like women are judged more poorly for using humor that like yeah, I know. men are given credit all, for humor. You, you judge, they're judged more harshly for using any, showing any emotion, but even making jokes at the office, it's considered bad for women and it's positive for men. doesn't make any sense. So to what extent though, have you seen, you know, whether it's the women in tech, they're covering the women in media, et cetera, uh, feel like they can now embrace their card. They, they don't have to role play men and pretend to be men anymore. So I think there has been a shift. I think there's been a gradual shift, say, over the past, past five or 10 years. But I actually think the shift for women to understand the particular strengths of their unique characteristics came during the pandemic. And I think the pandemic really put a spotlight on the importance of things like empathy and vulnerability. And there are a lot of studies in the book that talk about how in times of crisis, employees would rather have a female boss. 
And I would argue that now is a time of, like, this is a permanent state of crisis, whether it's financial anxiety and record inflation, war in Ukraine. I mean, there are just so many different elements contributing to uncertainty right now. And so if all the research shows that employees would rather have a female boss in a time of crisis, that speaks to the incredible power of those female traits, such as around a communal management style or vulnerability or empathy. And I'm actually hearing from more male CEOs that they understand that they need to get their head around these traits and these char- and these strategies. And I was talking to a, uh, a, a, a man who is an executive coach, and he works with top CEOs at big companies, mostly in New York. And he said that recently, sort of post-pandemic, he, as employees, you know, do quiet quitting and great resignation, and there's, it's just harder to connect with employees. He's he's finding his his CEO clients are saying, "Can you help me out with this empathy thing? Like, teach me how to be empathetic. I gotta I gotta <laughs> figure this out." And so, I, as as ridiculous as that sounds, is incredibly reassuring to to see that these traits are now at the forefront. And I do feel like these days it's table stakes. You you've got to figure out how to connect with employees and think big picture and do long-term planning and and have that uh, divergent thinking and figuring out the context. All of these characteristics that women have traditionally had are huge advantages. I do think people are starting to understand that. And I also think that the the weirdness of the pandemic of people being at home and being open about their, their lives, and maybe you have kids running in and out of the background, I think a lot of women have said, like, this is who I am, this is how I lead, and I'm not going to apologize for it anymore. To what extent, though, I mean, I've seen stats, and I'm sure you've seen them as well, on how much of a step back the pandemic was for women, especially in the in the workforce, that they the numbers Massive. haven't recovered. Massive. Yeah, horrible. Massive. We saw women leaving the workforce in record numbers. And this l- latest study, again, back to the McKinsey study, latest study found that female leaders, the most senior women, not in this, not CEOs, but very senior women, like VP level and above, they are leaving in record numbers. And so I think that that like, you know, what I mentioned earlier, like that speaks to the fact that people are frustrated, but I hope that some of those women will go out and start their own businesses. And we see such a high level of, of entrepreneurship. Women are more likely to found businesses than men are right now. That's So they're founding businesses at a higher rate. And that fact means that hopefully women are taking their, their careers more into their own hands. I mean, obviously founding a business is hard. Access to capital seems impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hope that while the pandemic has been such a massive setback for women in the workplace, it did at least raise attention to the value of women's leadership strategies and skills. Yeah. In, in the book, you write that uh, the numbers you have in the book are 42% of small business owners yeah. are women. And then as of 2019, pre-pandemic, the number of women-owned businesses were growing faster than the total amount of business growth. Yeah. I mean, there's still remarkable a growth in the in in the entrepreneurship space coming from women. The question is just how many of them are bootstrapping and maybe without venture capital are not going to be able to scale their businesses as quickly and how many of them are growing uh, are are able to grow more quickly because they've have either access to angel investing or maybe a slice a tiny piece of that slice of VC capital. We'll be back with more from this interview in just a moment. So as a man asking doing this interview asking you questions uh, as a man who doesn't work in HR, uh, but has both been a colleague, has been a leader, uh, has been an employee, um, what is your advice to men in the workforce uh, who are either at the CEO in the C-suite or junior and reporting into women leaders or other male leaders? How can we all help to um, improve the situation? I think um, that's a great question, and thank you. I think, first of all, everyone should read my book, When Women Lead, because it is a great primer on all the numbers that you didn't realize were there. The stats are horrifying, mind-boggling, and very surprising. So surprising that at at various points, a copy editor of my book was sure that these were typos. They thought that I messed up where the decimal was. So read the book so you can see that these are not typos. These are the real numbers. Right, right. I mean, one of them was I, I read twice. I was like, uh, of the two thousand companies that went public over over between twenty thirteen and twenty twenty, two thousand companies went public. There were eighteen female CEOs, or 09 percent. That is not a typo. <laughs> that yeah. is not a typo. So yeah, so I would say read the book to educate yourself on the numbers. I can't tell you how many men said I don't believe that two percent of VC capital to see to female founders. People don't believe it, but they're real, and I think you will be surprised by the stats in this book. 
Second, I think the power of pattern matching is really is massive and can also be per- pernicious. I was talking to a female CEO recently and she said, um, and this is a female CEO of a public company, and she said she was surprised to find as they were doing their own pay equity evaluation that even her female managers were paying the male employees more. And they needed to have, so she thought like female managers, they're going to be good about pay equity. They're going to know to pay men and women equally. But she found that, that this pattern matching, this assumption that men are ready for the promotion or this assumption that men is, this is what leaders look like. They look like men can even influence women in the workplace. So I think it's really important to be aware of that and to be so reliant on the data rather than instinct that data can overwhelm any instinct towards bias. And even to acknowledge that women have their own bias. I mean, by the way, plenty of women in the book didn't see themselves as CEOs. Like they said that, I didn't see myself as a CEO. By the way, they had not seen CEOs who looked like them. So of course they didn't see themselves as a CEO. And that's what I'm hoping to change with the stories in the book. But I think it's just even an awareness that no matter how good your intentions are, your bias is so deeply baked and so sort of societally ingrained that it may influence your decision-making. So the more you can use data and numbers and performance metrics to make decisions, the more you'll be making decisions fairly and accurately and not based on, on, on longstanding stereotypes and patterns. Yeah, and I was going to reverse the question and ask what women, um, you, you sort of got to it in your last answer, but um, where, where women can do better to support other women uh, or support themselves. Well, I think that there's a great chapter in the book on the importance of communities. And there's so many organizations, nonprofits, and also for-profit companies that are focused on helping women help each other. I have seen in the past 20 years an entire massive sea change in terms of women going from being concerned that there was only room for one of them in a room to understanding that they will all succeed if they can help each other out. And I think there's really a movement right now for women to help each other. And, uh, And so I think... For women, there are all these organizations. You could join Chief, which is for women at the VP level and above. There's an organization called The Crew, which helps women learn how to coach each other for their career success. So I think relying on networks of other women, offering help and asking for what you need needs to be destigmatized. Women feel uncomfortable asking friends for professional help. Men do not feel uncomfortable with that. So understanding that it's okay to, to build a business network and rely on that network for professional advancement. That's what people are supposed to do. Women feel feel a stigma around that and they need to get over that. So I think some of these key things, and I talk about a lot of this in the book, but I also think a lot of women suffer from imposter syndrome. I write in the book about how many women I interviewed who are currently CEOs of successful companies suffered from massive imposter syndrome that almost held them back. Gwyneth Paltrow suffered from imposter syndrome. If she suffers from imposter syndrome, then all of us probably do. So I think this idea of recognizing that and trying to decipher the difference between, wait a second, am I just having a moment of imposter syndrome? Maybe I could do more than I, and maybe I'm capable of more than I, I think in this moment. So I think sort of trying to peel away the layers of sort of societally imposed imposter syndrome that can hold us back is a really valuable thing as well. Yeah, in your conversation with Gwyneth, you were talking about, or she was bringing up examples of being asked by various folks, like, so who's the guy behind the scenes yeah. who's actually running things? Many CEOs in my book were asked that. Where's your white male co-founder? A number of women of color were asked. You can't do this without a white male co-founder. So looking beyond the U.S., Julia, like some countries have gone to quota systems, right? That um, all boards of major companies, you know, need to be 50-50, et cetera. By the way, California uh, was trying to do that. That's currently being challenged in the courts. What do you make of that? as a strategy? I think it depends on the culture of the society, right? Like I think, um, I think sometimes those guidelines force companies to realize how far from equity they actually are. So I actually think having that law proposed in California, even though it's being challenged in the courts, is a valuable exercise for companies to say, hey, wait a second, why do we only have one woman on our board? Or why do we have an all-male board? Which was something that happened for a number of companies or was the case for a number of companies going into this. So I think it's it's a shame that quota systems could be necessary. Um, I think that if companies were more cognizant of the statistical value of having diversity on their boards, they might be more likely to embrace that and not be forced by a quota system. But I do think that having these, these high-profile examples like the California law is a meaningful moment for, for reflection and self-evaluation. 
Yeah, going back to the conversation I, I had with um, Ali Vitali on uh, like even, you know, Biden going in and saying, I am going to appoint, a, you know, I'm, or I'm going to select a, a black female vice presidential candidate or making a point saying my next uh, Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji, who ended up being Ketanji Jackson, is going to be an African-American female. Um, and this kind of like the back and forth on that, like, is that good in some ways? Is that bad in some ways? Some people are like, you should just go with the most qualified person and not be explicit. Some people are saying, no, being explicit is important. We're confronting that, I guess, in, in all various aspects of life right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to have that conversation. Um, but also the Supreme Court is different because you want a diverse representation of people on the court. So I think in a way, being explicit about what perspective is missing from this court saying, okay, mm -hmm. We have these perspectives on the court. We don't have the perspective of a black woman on the court. That is a, that is a much different situation than if you're talking about um, talking about you know filling one person for a CEO role. You know, so I think I think um, there's value in understanding the context of each of those of those situations. So I think what's interesting is like as a journalist, I don't want to be known as a female journalist. I'm just a journalist. I would like to be known as a good journalist, not a good female journalist. And I really struggled with this in writing the book about how to make sure that I was not othering women by calling them female CEOs, right? And I think ultimately where I landed at that is the idea that women are so far from equity in the business space that until we get to a place where having female CEOs is more common um, or more normalized, we need to be elevating positive stories of success among female CEOs. And I hope that this book can help the female CEO from being almost a derogatory negative thing, um, at least based on the way women are often portrayed in the media, to making female CEO a positive thing. You want to be like a female CEO. Um, and sort of moving the conversation past this girl boss era where it was kind of a, kind of a joke. Like, this is not a joke. These are not girls. They are women. And yeah. they're leading with traits that everyone should understand and, and, and emulate. And everyone, male and female, should emulate. And that's why I, I sort of rationalized the importance of women leaders um, and not just, and not being worried that that othering of those women could have a more dam damaging impact. Yeah. I, I Earlier this year, uh, we had um, Rebecca Jarvis on the podcast. Um, a friend of mine. I love Rebecca. Love Rebecca. We were young some... reporters together at CNBC. Yes. Yes. And then um, Rebecca and I were then colleagues at CBS before she went on to uh, what she, all the great stuff she's been up to at ABC. And of course, she you know, had her incredible uh, podcast uh, that turned into a Hulu series on Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes. And a lot is made of Elizabeth Holmes, right? She's kind of held up and everyone, you know, I feel like you saw the question everywhere, like, well, so what does this mean to female founders, the Holmes example, et cetera? You know, and it was a lot, a lot was focused on her gender, even though you, there are many male uh, founders who, you know, have done the same or way worse. A hundred percent. And I actually talked about this a lot with Rebecca and she did a great package about my book. You can find it on abc.com. Um, but to me, what's so interesting is token theory. People who are in the minority are more likely to be criticized and draw increased attention. And I write about token theory in the book. So Elizabeth Holmes was scrutinized for her failures and also elevated for the fact that she was a rare female leader, sort of or like or highlighted for the fact that she was a rare female leader. But unfortunately, because there are so few other examples of female CEOs out there in the tech space, she sort of ate up all the oxygen in the room and people thought female CEO in tech failed leader Elizabeth Holmes. I was talking mm -hmm. to one female CEO who was telling her mom that she had raised venture capital funding and like filling in her mom on the latest. And her mom said, oh, please tell me you're not going to be like another Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> and here's a woman who's like a successful engineer founder raised VC capital and her mom's dominant image of a woman in tech wow. was Elizabeth Holmes. And that is because of token theory. There aren't enough other good examples out there to contextualize Elizabeth Holmes' failure as a rare thing and not represent representative of the majority of women. So I think, um, I mean, look, I loved Rebecca's podcast. I love the TV show. I think it's so fascinating but I also think that the public needs to have more examples of success mm -hmm. out there to contextualize a massive, spectacular, fascinating failure like Elizabeth Holmes. Is this giving you uh, inspiration for a new version of your Disruptor 50 list, Julia? Well, look, a lot of women are on the Disruptor 50 yeah. list. And um, we have a greater proportion of women-led companies on the list than there are uh, women-led companies getting financing. 
And one thing that's been really interesting about the D50 is um, is we ask the companies if they have diversity initiatives or what the, the diversity of their boards are. And every year we see more and more companies care about these things. We do a great polling of, of D50 companies. Um, and also more and more companies every year have a purpose in addition to profit. So part of that, I think, is the environment, like literally physically the environment, um, also the fundraising environment, and the fact that I think um, you know, companies are more successful if they have diversity and leadership. So, um, so the Disruptor 50 list is great and hopefully we'll see many more women on it and hopefully we'll see many more women take companies public. That statistic you mentioned is horrifying. We need to change that. Um, finally, so you, you know, you, you live and breathe the news every day at CNBC. You've taken a moment here. I don't know how many, many moments to write this book. What did you learn through this process, uh, that, you know, as a storyteller, where day to day you're telling stories, you're doing interviews, and here you've had an opportunity to really dive deep into something. I really love the contrast. I love my daily job. It's really exciting. It's fast paced. It's nonstop, um, super high energy, and there's always a real urgency to it. So writing a book was very different. You know, you're living with these characters. You know, there are dozens of women in the book, and I feel like they're my they're they're like you're they're like roommates. They like live with you in your head for two years. And you really get to know their stories and their motivations. And, and you know, these are women who, for the most part, I interviewed via Zoom because I did the, the interviews during the pandemic. Um, and so it's been interesting to reflect on their stories and then also to meet them in person as I've been on book tour and to really understand that if you have a really distinct, what I've seen in these women is if you have a very distinct purpose, I really think you're going to be more successful. And I'm not just talking about like helping the world or or you know, you know, helping improve healthcare or improve the environment, but just really understand what you're doing, who you want to, whether you know, working with your employees and bringing them along for the ride is important. And the women who I've profiled, they are just really not just driven and passionate, but they're not just about making money, but they really have this vision for I'm going to succeed, and I'm going to show everyone else that women can succeed. I'm going or I'm going to set this model for other people to follow. But the, the women are just remarkable. And I mean, I, I think about like I met Toyin Ajayi, who's the CEO of City Block Health for the first time when I was on book tour. And it was just amazing because I feel like I know her story. She's overcome so many challenges. She has such courage. She's so ambitious and bold in the vision she sees for transforming healthcare. And to just see that in action, um, not just on the pages of the book, but also to finally meet her, it's just exhilarating. And I think, I mean, I'm personally very inspired by these women. And I also have found that my knowledge of the data and the research, totally empowering to be more successful in my day to day. I'm no longer intimidated or, um, or put off by comments that are laced with bias. And it's been really, really helpful for me as I, as I negotiate and navigate being a business journalist. As you um, as you went through this, and this might be difficult to say, I want to end here. What is the biggest mistake women make uh, as they go up the ladder, as they seek to lead? And what we say is, as you spoke to all of these uh, women leaders, what would you say is the most important attribute, uh, the, the, the thing that most ensures success? I would say there are two mistakes. One is not thinking that they're capable of it or have the potential to do it, to, to really lead. Um, and number two is trying to lead in a way or fit themselves into a box that isn't authentic to them. Women should not try to fit themselves into that male stereotype. And I would actually say that Elizabeth Holmes failed in part because she was modeling herself on these genius male leaders like Steve Jobs. And she wasn't actually being true. She wasn't being honest, but she also wasn't being true to who she was, um, at least at the beginning of her story. So I think it's sort of like authenticity and confidence um, beyond what maybe women are socialized to have in themselves. And then in terms of the most important thing, the universal thing across 120 women, and by the way, thousands of other people I've interviewed, no one is born a leader. No one is born with what it takes to be successful. Nothing comes easy and it shouldn't come easy. People succeed because they have that combination of that self-knowledge of what who they are, what they're good at, and also a real focus in terms of how they push themselves to improve. I talk in the book about after-event reviews. It's sort of the equivalent of a post-mortem, although as one of the CEOs I quote say says, nobody died, so don't call it a post-mortem. But yeah. this idea that you will succeed if you get comfortable with failure. Once you're comfortable with failure, you can take greater risks. And every experience you have, success or failure, evaluate your performance and what you could do better. It's not about 
pitting yourself against other people, competing directly with other people. That's not what progress is about. It's about understanding your own goalposts, your own benchmarks, and pushing yourself to get there regardless of whatever else is happening in the world. Be confident, be yourself, and learn from mistakes. The book is When Women Lead, Julia Borson. I, I so Finally, I worked at Bloomberg for years with CNB. We've crisscrossed in this industry, and I'm so glad we've had the opportunity to talk I'm today. so happy to know you now. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm grateful to Julia for making time uh, to tape this conversation actually on a weekend after coming off that marathon day uh, reporting on Elon Musk and the Twitter takeover. A reminder that you can buy Julia's book, When Women Lead, wherever you get your books. I'll actually include a link in the show notes to make it uh, easy for you to purchase it. You can also catch her coverage on all things tech and media daily over on CNBC. And before you go, don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever app you listen to this podcast on and leave us a review in the app store. Tell your friends about it. Tell the world about it. We really appreciate everyone who's leaving a review. It helps us continue to grow the program. A reminder that you can also get all things Mo News into your email inbox if you go head over to monews.bulletin.com to subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow me on Instagram where this all got started at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow for our next daily edition of the podcast.